Well, thank you very much, Dayan. Um, when I'm invited uh, by former students to speak, it's always a nervous beginning because you never quite know what secrets are going to be divulged to the, the congregation. Uh, but uh, since he hasn't divulged anything about me, um, I won't divulge anything about him. That's okay. Good. Stand out from the crowd. You know, that's what we all need to do if we're going to be successful, whether we're going to apply to university, whether we're trying to attract a member of the opposite sex, applying for a job. If you're going to succeed, you must stand out from the crowd. And on that point, there's a particular sporting event which uh, always strikes me, and that is the annual London Marathon. And what strikes me here are not the elite athletes, you know, those who post those phenomenal times running 26 miles. But it's the ordinary people, ordinary folk like you and me, the, the weekend joggers who take this opportunity with the marathon televised to stand out from the crowd. We've probably seen these folk as they plod their way around the streets of London dressed up as Donald Duck or Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. One fellow last year dressed up as a traditional red British telephone kiosk to stand out uh, from the crowd. Now, those of you who know me know that I'm a fairly shy, uh, withdrawn kind of fellow. You know, I don't like the limelight. And um, yet some years ago, I do remember going with my son to watch uh, Reading Football Club play. This was at their old stadium at Elm Park, and they were playing my team, Middlesbrough. Now, my son and I, we couldn't get in at the visitor's end of the ground. So we found ourselves standing behind the goalmouth at the Reading end of the stadium, surrounded by hundreds, thousands of true blue Reading supporters. Now, it was a very close match and the fortunes of each team fluctuated backwards and forwards until, I'm glad to tell you, until the mercurial Middlesbrough left-winger Jimmy Hendry jinked his way through the Reading defence and scored a screamer of a goal right in front of me and I leapt in the air in celebration only to be rugby tackled by my son who hissed in my ear Dad, don't do that. Well, I certainly did stand out from the crowd of Reading supporters and somehow escape with my life. But it's to another crowd that I'd like us to go uh, today. And what a crowd this is. This crowd we meet in the early part of the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar II of the Neo-Babylonian Empire a huge gathering of the faithful out there on the plain of Jura, just beyond the walls of his fantastic capital city of Babylon. And uh, let's just read the first two verses of Daniel 3 again. They were read for us in the scripture reading, but we'll read them just again to remind ourselves. King Nebuchadnezzar made a golden statue whose height was 60 cubits and whose width was 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Jura in the province of Babylon. And then King Nebuchadnezzar sent for the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the councillors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to assemble and come to the dedication of the statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. 
Now, as you know, this isn't the first time in the book of Daniel that we have met with a metal idol or a metal image. We read about the, the first one in the scripture reading. In the previous episode of Daniel chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar II had a dream of a metal idol made up of various kinds of metal until this small rock in his dream, this small rock comes hurtling through the air, smashes that metal image into smithereens, uh, the stone, that rock, uh, representing the kingdom of God. And now here, on the plain of Jura, here we are in Daniel chapter 3, the masked, the masked elite of the Babylonian Empire, anybody who was anybody, is here this day. In the previous uh, chapter, Nebuchadnezzar's dream idol had had a head of gold, the gold of Babylon. Here, Nebuchadnezzar makes an idol made entirely of gold, the gold of Babylon. This is a thoroughly Babylonian idol. We can see that just from its dimensions. So if you were reading in the NIV, um, some of you know my thinking about the NIV, so I won't go into that, but the NIV converts the, uh, the measurements for us. But what the text says literally about this idol is that it is 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide. Now, the base of Babylonian mathematics was 60, not, not like our decimal 10, but 60. And this is 60 by 6. You might recall that in the book of Revelation, we meet up with the great Babylonian beast in the book of Revelation. The Babylonian beast has a number. You remember what the number of the Babylonian beast is? 666. That's what makes it a Babylonian beast. This is 60 times 6. This is an idol of Babylon. And uh, the destruction of Nebuchadnezzar's dream idol had been God's judgment on human pride and ambition. And yet here, the very next episode, Nebuchadnezzar is at it again. And about what in particular is Nebuchadnezzar proud? Well, two things, two things in particular. Size and power. First of all, size. This idol is enormous. At 60 cubits, or 30 meters tall, it is second only to the legendary Colossus of Rhodes, one of the wonders of the ancient world, which stood 70 cubits high. And not just size, but also power. And we see power in the consequences for disobeying Nebuchadnezzar. Because in no uncertain terms, he tells us this in verse 6. Verse 6. Whoever doesn't fall down and worship shall immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. Nebuchadnezzar's obsession with size and power means that everyone must obey. Anyone who refuses will meet a quick end in the flames of his furnace. Nebuchadnezzar demands absolute conformity. Absolute conformity. And we see that not just in what the king says and in how the king says it, 
but in how this story is told. So for example, who is invited to come to the plain of Jura that day? Verse 2. The people invited are the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the councillors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces. Well, who turns up? Who accepts the invitation? Verse 3. So, the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the councillors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces turn up. And what are they commanded to do? Verse 5. When you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, drum, and entire musical ensemble, you must fall down. And how do these people respond? Verse 7. As soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, drum, an entire musical ensemble, they all fell down. You see, Nebuchadnezzar demands absolute conformity. Exactly what the king commands is exactly what must happen. And that is the point of that mindless repetition. Precisely what the king says is precisely what must happen. And that's exactly what he gets from the satraps, prefects, governors, councillors, treasurers, justices, magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces. The mindless repetition drives that home. You know, when the famous scientist Pavlov, when he rang his bell, immediately his dogs started drooling. Here on the plain of Jura, Immediately they hear that orchestra strike up. Immediately they all fall down. Both of those reactions, totally predictable. With Pavlov's dogs, it was the expectation of food. For the crowd on the plain of Jura that day, it was the heat of that furnace on their backs. But three people three people stand out from the crowd. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego quite literally stand out from the crowd. And this is brought to the attention of the king in verse 12. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These pay no heed to you, O king, and they do not serve your gods. Certain Jews. Because by now the kingdom of Judah is just a small, insignificant province tucked away in the southwest corner of the great Babylonian empire. And the cream of the population of Judah have been taken in exile off to Babylon, there to serve the interests and to produce the greater glory of the Babylonian Empire. On the plain that day then, on the plain of Jura that day, there would have been many Jews, but only certain Jews remained standing. Just three Jews stood out from the crowd. The rest of the Jews were the crowd. But Nebuchadnezzar is a reasonable man. 
former students of me here today will have heard me say that to you as you came trembling to my office. I am a reasonable man. And that is what the king says here, verse 14. Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods and you do not worship the golden statue that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, drum, an entire musical ensemble to fall down and worship the statue that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire, and who is the God that will deliver you out of my hands? Well, he's back into the same rhythm again. Did you hear that? Exactly what the king commands is exactly what must happen. But not this time. Not this time. Because the three friends don't simply repeat this mindless repetition that's been going on in the story up to this point. They make a short, simple speech of faith which goes against the grain of everything that's been happening up to this point. We'll read what they say in verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego answered the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to present a defense to you in this matter. If our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire and out of your hand, O king, let him deliver us. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods, and we will not worship the golden statue that you have set up. Those are the only words these three friends speak in the entire story. It's the brief simple statement of faith which flies in the face of all the wordiness and verbosity and repetition of all the speeches which have been coming up to this point. The king can parrot his mantra as long as he likes all day long, but he does not control them. And their contrasting speeches represent their contrasting views of the world. On the one hand, the king presents the principles of Babylon, the principles of size, power, and conformity. On the other hand, these three young men say there are some principles which just cannot be compromised, and those principles are summed up in the law of God. First of all, we will worship no other gods because, well, because there are no other gods. And secondly, no idols. No idols because the God we serve makes himself known in this world, not through the medium of metal idols. The God we serve makes himself known in this world through the lives of those people who serve him. That's how our God makes himself known in this world. <clears throat> and uh, these three young friends, they choose to stand out from the crowd, not because they are convinced that the power of God will save them, because as they say, they don't know whether God will save them or not. They stand out from the crowd. The only reason they do so is because that 
is the right thing to do. Whether they live or whether they die, it's the right thing to stand out from the crowd. Furnace or no furnace. I can remember when I was a, uh, a very little boy, I remember standing day by day on the, the front doorstep of our house and waving goodbye to my dad as he set off for work. And when my dad set off for work, as well as the clothes he stood up in, my father also had to take with him two changes of clothes because my dad worked for Dorman Long and Company, at the time one of the world's premier steel producers. And my father worked on their enormous blast furnaces. And my dad needed to take with him two extra changes of clothes when he set off for work because the heat of those furnaces was so intense that dripping with sweat, he had to change his clothes every two or three hours of an eight-hour shift. He had to take salt tablets to stop his muscles from cramping up. And when I was, I couldn't have been more than five or six, as a special treat, he took me with him to work one day for a short visit. I can still remember it as I was about so high, looking up in awe at these enormous blast furnaces, at their size, incidentally, about 60 cubits high, about the same height as Nebuchadnezzar's idol, and their noise and heat and light. And I held my hands up to protect myself from the heat, even at that distance, as these furnaces sucked in preheated air at 1,000 degrees and pumped it up to 1,500 degrees. Now, Dorman Long and Company won the contract to produce the steel for the Sydney Harbour Bridge. And uh, although this was a few years before my father's time, the same furnaces that my dad sweated in front of, those same furnaces spewed out 58,000 tons of molten steel that went into the world's longest single arch bridge. The day I arrived in Australia to work, we were met at the airport. We were driven through the streets of Sydney, swept around the arc of the Carl Expressway, and then there it was, spanning the waters of Sydney Harbour, all 58,000 tons of it, 58,000 tons of sweat and salt tablets and muscles just aching for the shift to end. And every time I drove across the Sydney Harbour Bridge, my mind went back to that childhood visit to Dorman, Long and Company. And to this day, I remember one thing in particular about their furnaces. They were hot! And Nebuchadnezzar's furnace was hot too. Second only to the heat of the king's rage as he 
ordered even more fuel to be thrown into that furnace because these three friends refuse to bow. Now, with those flames leaping and swirling around his furnace, these three friends, well, the end looks pretty clear. This wouldn't be the first time in the Bible that people have met their end in fire. You know, we might remember people like Achan, uh, Jephthah's daughter. Uh, we might remember even half-forgotten verses like the one in the book of Jeremiah, which says, May the Lord make you like Hezekiah and Ahab, whom the king of Babylon roasted in the fire. He's been, up, he's been at it again, you see. If we go back to the first chapter of the book of Daniel, where we first met these young men, there we are told that they are handsome brutes. Oh, yeah, good lookers. Or, as the text puts it, without blemish. But that's not the best thing to be, actually, without blemish when you stand in front of the flames. Because as you might recall in the Old Testament, being without blemish was a requirement for a burnt offering. Things aren't looking too good for these two men. But on the other hand, on the other hand, there is another possibility as we think through what we know about the Bible. You remember Moses was out in the wilderness of Midian, walking through the wilderness of Midian with his sheep, and he came across a bush which seemed to be burning up, but wasn't consumed. And from within the flames of that bush, God spoke to him. Fire was the presence of God, just as the pillar of fire that God had sent in front of the Israelites as he led them through the wilderness of Sinai. And then Ezekiel, like Daniel, the prophet Ezekiel is a, an exile in Babylon. And in Ezekiel's famous vision, where he sees these multiple-headed beasts and these wheels within wheels, we have a vision of the presence and throne of God. And what do we see right in the center of Ezekiel's vision of the presence of God? Fire. Fire surrounds the throne of God. And here in the book of Daniel, if you just quickly look at Daniel chapter 7, a famous vision of Daniel. In Daniel 7, beginning in verse 9, it reads, As I watched, thrones were set in place, and an ancient one took his throne. His clothing was white as snow, the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and flowed out from his presence. Fire is the presence of God. So what will these three young men find in that furnace? Death or God himself? Even the three friends don't know. So they're bound. They're thrown into the flames. And then I can imagine Nebuchadnezzar, somewhat like a five-year-old Lawrence Turner, standing there in front of the furnace, peering through the intense heat. In the flames of that furnace, the king 
sees God. Remember the famous verse, verse 25 of Daniel 3. The king replied, I see four men unbound, walking in the middle of the fire, and they're not hurt. And the fourth has the appearance of a god. So, rather than death, these three young men meet God in the flames of that furnace. And just like the burning bush, they too are not consumed. You see, Nebuchadnezzar thought that fire would destroy the followers of God. What actually happens is that God meets his followers in the flames of that furnace. That's what happened when they chose to stand out from the crowd. Something else happened too. In standing out from the crowd, those three friends demonstrated their character. In that crisis, in that critical moment, they demonstrated their character. Now, contrary to popular opinion, character is not formed in a crisis. Character isn't formed in a crisis. It is revealed in a crisis. In a crisis, there's no time to form our characters. All we've got time for is to reveal the characters we have. Our characters are formed in our everyday life, in the humdrum existence of our everyday existence. When, on principle, we make choices, where we say, yes, I will, or no, I won't, on principle, Every day-to-day -day living, that's where our character is formed. It's in a crisis that our character is revealed. I'd like to just reflect briefly on that crisis then. You know, I don't think that Nebuchadnezzar really cares that much about which god or gods these young men worship in the privacy of their own homes. That's their business. He's a polytheist. He believes in many gods. You know, that's okay. His interest is in their public conduct. The image they project to the rest of Babylon and to their colleagues in the Babylonian civil service, that's what Nebuchadnezzar is interested in. And it's not that much different to our situation, I think, for most of us, Today, you know, being a Christian, being a Seventh-day Adventist, and that's perfectly acceptable. I mean, I know there are people who think you're a bit quirky and odd, you know, but as long as that's your personal conviction, you know, you're, what you hold privately, I mean, if it works for you, mate, all right. Just don't stand out from the crowd. Don't allow your principles to rub up against the, the principles upon which our society are built. Don't challenge the Babylonian principles of our culture, the principles of size and power and conformity. But of course, that's the very thing which this story in Daniel asks us to do. It asks us to take a stand. There's a great temptation, I think, 
for the church. And when I say the church, I mean us, you know, we form the church. There is a great temptation for the church to be seduced by the Babylonian principle of size. You know, a successful church is big, an unsuccessful church is small. If we're not careful, that can seriously skew our understanding of our job as agents for the kingdom of God. We seriously underestimate the nature of the gospel if we think that we can express it in uh, statistics and dimensions as if it were that idol standing there on the plain of Jura trying to impress ourselves and everybody else with the number of baptisms and statistical analyses which show we're getting bigger. But perhaps even more dangerous than the principle of size is accepting the Babylonian principle of power. You know, a church which defines itself in terms of power and influence is likely to see God in those terms too. Our God is a powerful God. But this story that we're looking at is less interested in the power of God and more interested in the morality of God. Because these three friends don't choose to stand out from the crowd because they know the power of God will save them because as they say, they don't know whether God will save them or not. They choose to stand out from the crowd in order to show that they are not committed to these Babylonian principles but committed to the principles of the kingdom of God. The principles of justice, righteousness, truth. That's why they stand out from the crowd. And then there is perhaps the ultimate temptation, the Babylonian principle of conformity. You know, as the Adventist church grows, and I've been in some places of the, of the world where you can hardly contain the growth of the Adventist church. It's just expanding hugely there's a tendency to, to fall victim to the same temptation that dazzled Nebuchadnezzar that day on the plain of Jura. In order to keep all this lot together to become authoritarian, everybody bow down to the same idol. Precisely what is demanded is precisely what must be done. In fact, that's why these three friends challenge the Babylonian principles, size, power, and conformity. They challenge those principles, as they say, on the basis of our God whom we serve. And our God whom we serve is revealed in this story, not in the... Uh, huge size of that enormous crowd out there on the plain of Jura. Our God whom we serve is not found in that colossal image towering over the top of everybody. Our God we serve isn't found in the grandiose speech of the king and his officials as they repetitively go through all of the demands. That is not where our God whom we serve is found. Our God whom we serve is found 
in the furnace with those individuals who for no other reason than it's the right thing to do stood out from the crowd according to their convictions and it is with them that our God whom we serve is found. And that I'd say in many ways is the mission of the church, the mission of uh, Stanborough Park Church to live out the principles of the kingdom of God rather than the principles of Babylon and above all be true to our Lord Jesus Christ, to be above all else people of principle, to live our lives, each one of us, to live our lives conspicuously in conflict with the Babylonian principles of size, power and conformity. And also to be members of God's radical opposition when those principles threaten to infect the church and for the sake of our God whom we serve to stand out from the crowd.